Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm the managing partner of Bradyware Arpeggio, a data-driven management consultancy which brings clarity to owners and managers of unique businesses facing unique strategic decisions. Our parent, Bradyware & Company, is sponsoring this podcast. Bradyware is a public accounting firm with offices in Dayton, Ohio, Alpharetta, Georgia, Columbus, Ohio, and Richmond, Indiana. If you'd like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I also host a LinkedIn group called Unblakeable's Group That Doesn't Suck. So please join that as well if you would like to engage. Today's topic is, should I fight the IRS? And I'm actually surprised at myself that we haven't had this topic before because um, I think this is topical for everybody. It's clearly an evergreen topic. Um, I'm not sure that anybody is more feared in our government than the Internal Revenue Service. You can make an argument that outside of the armed forces of the most powerful um, government agency. Um, and you know, the fact of the matter is that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of, of people have interactions or people and businesses have interactions with the Internal Revenue Service every year involving some dispute over the amount of taxes that they owe. Um, and I think for many of us, the, the goal, if the IRS approaches us with any kind of controversy, is we just kind of want to make them go away. Um, most of us don't necessarily have, necessarily have a, an appetite to fight the IRS, <clears throat> um, but that calculus may change. You may not have the money to pay what the IRS, IRS wants you to pay, or it may be just an unreasonable demand. Or it may be, in effect, if it goes in front of a court, it may wind up being an illegal demand. But how do you know that? And uh, I think that is difficult to know. And, and even CPAs will, will give you a nuanced answer here. Um, because fighting the IRS is hard. And fire, fighting the IRS is scary. And fighting the IRS has an uncertain outcome. No, notice I didn't say, should I beat the IRS? I said, should I fight the IRS? There's no guarantee of victory. And so I think this will be a very interesting topic, even if you haven't been the target of an IRS investigation or action or principle of an action, um, you may be in the future and forewarned is, uh, is of course, forearmed. And so joining us today is uh, my new colleague, actually, Bruce Wood, who is a principal at Brady Ware Arpeggio. He is a business appraiser whose practice focuses primarily on tax-specific areas including tax controversy, which means executing business appraisals and litigation support in U.S. tax court cases, as well as settlement offers between the IRS and taxpayer under the direction of tax and estate litigation attorneys from national and local law firms. 
Bruce is also an expert in estate gift and trust uh, tax and business transactions planning and compliance. He works with closely held businesses such as S-Corps, C-Corps, LLCs, family partners, and et cetera. He brings over 30 years of experience to the marketplace, spending the last 20 in business appraisal after 12 years as a CPA tax advisor. Often faced with decisions or situations impacting the value of a transaction or business, Bruce helps navigate the complexities of those situations. He has helped in industries such as meat processing, professional services, manufacturing, distribution, food service, mining, technology, retail, and other business sectors. And I can't tell you how delighted we are to have him join the team, and I'm equally delighted to have him on the podcast. Bruce Wood, welcome to the Decision Vision Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. And I am equally thrilled not only about being here, but about being with our company. It's been a, it's been a really good, really good match. So let's start with the basics. The IRS doesn't challenge every tax return that comes through. In, in your experience, what, why does the IRS challenge tax returns at all? Well, anything outside of estate and gift, as far as I know, they're selected first by a computer scoring system that is set up to determine anomalies. And then managers go through those returns that are selected to see which ones are audit-worthy. When it comes to estate tax returns, when somebody files one, it's going to be looked at. And more, more automatically, it's not, it's not random. If you, if you have enough estate to file an estate tax return, They'll look at it and they'll either send a closing letter, which once you've got the closing letter, then that's saying they're going to leave you alone. Otherwise, if they think it's audit worthy, you know, they'll look at it more closely, may inquire, may do an audit. Now, that's interesting. I didn't realize they sent a closing letter. So um no news is not necessarily good news. You either get an affirmative uh, notification that your your estate appraisal has been accepted, or or there's some sort of other uh, action that'll be taken. Right. Interesting. Okay. And, and for purposes of this discussion, I think it's important that our audience understand. And you and I have talked about this prior to the conversation. You know, you you specialize in a specific area of of tax controversy you're not necessarily challenging or working on income tax returns. That's what more conventional CPAs do, but rather a fairly specialized area where uh, wealth is being transferred from one party to another, whether it's a gift or an estate or um, charitable contribution, things of that nature. That's right. So, um, you know, when when the IRS decides they're going to raise an issue, and then they send, they say, you owe us X number of dollars. What usually goes, goes into that? How, how are those numbers of dollars calculated from the IRS perspective? Well, they'll do what's called an adjustment, or first would be a proposed adjustment. And so, for example, they may disallow a discount. Well, give you a little background. In business appraisals, 
for non-controlling interest, especially there are control and marketability discounts because people wouldn't pay for so, as much for a block of stock that's non-controlling. And the IRS has a serious issue with that. It's very common that they'll make an adjustment to the discount. So it may they make a, make a proposed adjustment. So let's say it's $10 million. So that means you owe tax in their mind on an additional $10 million plus interest and penalties for underpayment. It may be $40 million. They, they may make several adjustments in one return. So it can get expensive pretty quickly. And how does the IRS decide on interest and penalties? Are those formulas, do they get to make up what those things are? How do those work? No, those are those are in the either in the code or, or statutory. They're I mean I'm not using the right word, but they're predetermined. They're predetermined. They don't get okay. to decide. So they're they're rules based. They're not just that's right. Rules based. They're not just the IRS says, well, we think you're jerks, so you have to pay the, you have to pay more dollars. That's you have to pay there, There's a rule that has to be followed. That's right. Okay. So um, if you're in the unlucky group, for lack of a better term, that does not get that all clear notification. Instead, they're going to challenge and propose an adjustment. What does that What does that look like procedurally? And then how long does that can that process take in trying to resolve an IRS challenge? I'm not sure there's a limit on how long it can take. They have a, there's generally a three-year statute for them to make changes, but litigation can go on for years. I'm dealing with a 2018 case right now. So it's, it's hard to put a cap on either the time or the professional fees that would be spent. So years of litigation, that sounds expensive. Very much so. So it's safe to say that you're probably looking at the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And if the matter is large enough, like say the Michael Jackson case that uh, recently resolved, maybe millions of dollars. Exactly. Um, and so, are, go ahead. There are situations where it's the best thing to do, but you really, uh, but making the decision, like we're talking about analyzing and making the decision is, is, is key. Are you going to fight this or not? What's it worth in terms of losing sleep, stress, distracting you from other things you need to do, whether it's work or play, you know, what's that worth to you? Um, Yeah. So in, in a way, I mean, the IRS does that cost of, of, of prosecuting or challenging does give the IRS a particular element of leverage, doesn't it? In that, you know, if, if the IRS is, is asking you to pay another $10,000, for example, and they probably wouldn't do that, but just for, just for, for an example, they're making a, an adjustment of $10,000 on a state. Probably most, most of the time you're going to say, you know what, just write the check and move on. I would think so. Um, it, a, a boss of mine once said, you know, you cheated me fair and square. <laughs> right. Is it worth, right, in a situation like that, typically, maybe 
negotiate with the agent, see what you can get, but I wouldn't go get heavy into litigation, hire hiring professionals for $10,000. No. So let's talk about the negotiating with the agent. Cause I, I I'd like our audience to understand and candidly, I don't fully understand kind of how it works. So, you know, from a day-to-day or, or practical perspective, when, when the IRS proposes an adjustment, you decide that as a taxpayer, you want to challenge that adjustment. What happens then? Well, first thing to do is talk to the IRS agent on your case. And get him to explain why, or him or her to explain why the adjustment, they'll usually, they'll document that usually. And then make sure they have all the facts. They may be missing facts. Well, did you know this, this, and this? So it's good to talk to them. A a good IRS agent will, will talk to you about the adjustment before they make it. And that way, if there's a mis- if it's based on a misunderstanding or something, you can catch it early. But if they do, if they do propose an adjustment, one thing to keep in mind is their manager has given them this case, and so go out this taxpayer. You've got to make it easy for the IRS agent to to take into account what you're saying, whether it's you personally or through your professional. Um, knowledge is power. A professional should be advising the taxpayer on what to do, giving the agent the relevant law. Keep in mind these agents are, the IRS is is understaffed, according to them, and there are, there are so many things they can't get to, so they're going to go for the low-hanging fruit. Don't give them low-hanging fruit to the extent possible. And then, you know, the, there's so there's there's an agent involved, right? And I think it's important for the for audience to know this. It, it's not like you disagree with the IRS and bang, you're in tax court. There's likely going to be a lot of things that need to happen before before appearing in tax court is even a realistic possibility. And right. that's before we even entertain the discussion as to whether or not that's even a desirable outcome, right? So right. Where where does the where does that conversation with the, the 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 agent go? If you're not able to get a resolution with the agent, what happens then? Is there an escalation to a manager or, or something, or how, how does that work? Yeah, she can request to talk to the agent's manager next, and if you exhaust it, if you exhaust that kind of option. There's IRS appeals, and it takes, I would t- at least several months to get on their calendar. But and this is this is just what I've heard several places. But appeals will give away about half of the cases, or, or half of the issues, I should say, because if the IRS agent hasn't documented it properly, the agent thinks the IR, or the the appeals agent thinks the IRS agent is wrong. They don't, they don't have the bandwidth to redo it for them. They'll just typically, I think, decide right there, okay, we're going to throw this issue out. We're going to fine for the IRS for this issue. And then even if, 
and then lawyers talk back and forth and it it is a and then of course getting it heard in tax court takes god only knows how long so you would be basically held hostage if you were if that was a big issue to you waiting to go to tax court they may or may not hear your case it may take years there's a lot involved so you know, and, and it's important to understand, I think, in that process, the meter is still running to an extent, right? You're still accruing interest and potentially additional penalties um, while that process is playing out, right? It depends. There are cases where you, I don't know, I'm right offhand, but there, this will be an attorney question, but there are cases where you have to pay the tax up front and then seek a refund. Interesting. Depending on which court you're going to. And so, so that would stop the interest and penalties from accruing. Right. But of course, the downside is the IRS already has your money. <laughs> right. And you may or may not get it back. Right. I mean, this this may or may not apply, but they say the position is nine-tenths of the law, right? It's, it's um, you know, I don't exactly. know if this is true with IRS matters, but it certainly feels like I have less leverage if I've already written the check. It does. That never I don't know if that's actually true, but it certainly feels uncomfortable. So, sure. Um, so, in this conversation, and and let's let's go, kind of go back to the agent level. How, how does having a, a a CPA and a business appraiser like you and and specialized tax legal counsel? How does having a team like that impact the likelihood of of getting the the matter resolved in a way that's positive for the taxpayer? Well, they have these professionals know the law and can, you know, when the agent proposes an adjustment, they can assess the validity of the adjustment, check out the law, and provide the agent more information. There may be something the agent missed, and they can say, they can communicate if they disagree with the agent on the issue. And another, and they're not they're not emotionally wrapped up in the case like the taxpayer is. That's another key element. Um, it's a lot of times it's best for the taxpayer not to talk unless he's directed to, and let the professionals do the talking. And and that brings up, I think, a very important point in that. Um, you know, not not speaking at all to the dedication or professionalism of the IRS agent or individuals involved, but the fact of the matter is, it's not it's not their money they're playing with on right. any on any level, right? And so that's right. You know, I, I do think that there's a there's an inherent negotiating advantage with the IRS uh, that that is in favor of the IRS because. At the end of the day, the entire exercise is depersonalized, right? It's not like an right. IRS agent gets a bonus if they collect more tax. They're not on commission. You're right. They're not on commission. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, just like in my practice and in, in transactions, we do have clients say, you know, we're, we're too close to this. We don't want to negotiate our own sale. And right. we'll sort of be that, that buffer. It sounds like there actually is a parallel with an IRS negotiation. There is, and another value of having the professionals there is this is not unique to IRS agents. Um, lawyers do this, 
and gaining somebody's trust, getting them to talk. The IRS agent may go, wow, this is a really cool business. How did you do this and how did you do that? Get the guy talking. Some people love to hear themselves talk, love to talk about themselves, and they can get all kinds of information that way. And they don't even realize, you know, what's happened until it's too late. Well, and, you know, that's negotiating 101 too, right? It's if, if right. you can build some sort of relationship with the other party, some way of connecting and make the relationship somewhat less adversarial, right? Um, it's more likely you're going to achieve some kind of resolution. Right. I agree <clears throat> that it, people skills are important and good professionals know how to do that because IRS agents are people too. You know, they go home, they don't want to be screamed at or told they're idiots, you know, any, any more than anybody else does. And they have families, they go home, their families are, you know, they, after a rough day, they get upset, that kind of thing. So they want, they want respect just like the rest of us. That doesn't mean you have to just, that doesn't mean you have to agree with them. But so, 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 and you touch on a point that I want to actually ask is the next question, which is, um, I think some people are tempted to, um, to stereotype IRS agents or really any government employee as, as somebody that may or may not necessarily be competent because they're working for the government, right? We hear about, I'm from the government, I'm here to help, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, is, is that true? Or do you find that a lot of IRS agents, in fact, are very competent professionals? Sometimes what you're saying is true. But other, but other times, I've known some that left big four CPA firms to go to work there because they wanted the work-life balance. And my guess would be that they love to be underestimated. You know, they probably have fun with that. Interesting. So, so it, and the the agent may act like they're from the sticks; they don't know anything. But that's all. That's always dangerous. Underestimating people is dangerous, including IRS agents. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, years ago, I used to be a, a fairly serious chess player. Decades ago, now. Um, but one of the hardest things to do was to play somebody who is new to the tournament scene because you had to make sure to not underestimate them. And because they were new, you couldn't, you couldn't exactly predict what they were going to do. Hustlers <laughs> um, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of hustlers or, or just, you know, they weren't indoctrinated with, with conventional thinking necessarily. So you weren't, you weren't exactly sure kind of what, what the move sequence was going to be. Um, even if you kind of right. thought that you had that all figured out and, you know, I, I can see that I can see people sort of liking the, the, the position of, of being underestimated and, and being the underdog, because if, you know, from the other side of the table, if, if your counterparty is overconfident, right, maybe they're going to make a mistake, right. And right. maybe they're going to say something dumb or damaging, um, or compromising, that if I'm the agent, that's going to make my life a little easier. Right. 
and and you know also i'm curious i i don't have that much in that much experience with the government but i've read i've read enough about in particular sec actions um and and one thing that strikes me about the sec anyway is that um for the most part they really for the most part they're going to give you a lot of ways out they're going to give you a lot of off ramps but if you're a jerk and if you're condescending and if you're if you're sort of deliberately confrontational um and and not listening to any kind of reason you know the SEC will then turn around and make an example of you <laughs> there's sure. there's a there's a, a a point at which the door to a resolution sort of a, a peaceful solution sort of closes right. and now you're going not only you're going to court but you're probably going to jail if you lose um it, in your experience is that the way with the irs too that you you can sort of you can sort of yell you can sort of you know sort of get in the ref's face for a little bit but that, at a certain point there's a technical foul and you're thrown out of the game right and you well it's a little different you you probably won't go to jail but it's it can make your your financial life hell. So it's not a good idea. So, you know, we, we talked about the agent level, the manager level, and then the appeals level. And then presumably after that, there's tax court level in your mind, where is the optimal stage to settle a tax controversy? Well, the IRS is under pressure some kind of pressure to settle things at the lowest possible level. So, and to the extent you can, that's good advice to follow. Because every time you decide to go to the next step, it's more time, more stress, or more meetings with your professionals, more strategizing, more more work produced and less attention to other things in your life. So if the, if you can get something reasonable, come to something reasonable conclude or agreement with the actual agent, that's certainly the easiest appeals. You have a 50, 50, shot. So if you think, you know, in certain cases where it's a lot of money, the IRS agent is being unreasonable. You don't think they did their homework or really have a leg to stand on. That might be a good option. So in your experience, how often do challenges on, and I'm just going to limit this to your world because I know that that's the place you know. How right. often do challenges happen on gift and estate uh, tax returns? What, what what would you estimate as a percentage of, you know, given, say, 100 or 1,000 gift or estate tax returns that are are filed, what, what number of those are, are likely to face a challenge? Would probably, I don't know a number, but it would, uh, it would probably, I, I can tell you the start, where I think the starting point would be, though, the larger estates would likely be looked at more closely and they're looking for low hanging fruit. They don't have, I've heard IRS appraisers talk. They, they came to the 
GSCPA one time and gave us a presentation. They don't have time to look at every report. They're overwhelmed. They have fun, we have fundamental disagreements about whether control and marketability discounts even apply at all, much less the amount. But they they're going to go after the low hanging fruit. The report the reports that aren't documented that take leaps of faith that say base a marketability discount on an average of a bunch of studies instead of what's going on with that company. When there's any time in their analysis where they have an analysis, when they have a conclusion and they don't tell you how they got from one to the other, when they leave holes like that, my goal is in my reports is always to make it easy for the user to go through and duplicate my work. They could take the same information I had, you know, access to the same databases that I have referenced in the report that, so even if the, the IRS doesn't agree with it, they can duplicate my report and see how I got my answers. When, they're, when they can do that, when there's not a leap of faith somewhere, well, there's no control here, so we think it should be 20%, something like that. So document, document, document. Make it make their job easier by making a report, but a report easier to read, and give them less gray area to jump on. And, and you know, I'm I'm a big fan of that approach. Is one of the reasons I think you know you and I work so well together, and that we're we're of the same cloth there. Um, yes. You know, we don't we don't we don't like those holes. And in fact, one thing I, I regret about our profession, uh, you know, we, you, I'm sure know this, but not everybody does. We, we used to have another uh, credentialing body, the Institute of Business Appraisers. Sure. And um, uh, one thing that made, that stood out in their series of professional standards that I think was unique and has not been adopted since, but under IBA professional standards that, uh, you know, a, 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 a business appraisal report should be replicable by a competent professional given the same sort, same uh, information set, basically. And sure. again, it doesn't mean that they agree with it, but it, but it should be able to be replicated. And, you know, to be candid, I truly wish the, um, uh, the appraisal foundation and uh, the national association of certified valuation analysts I truly wish they would both, and the AICPA, the third one, would adopt that into their set of professional standards because um, it really should not be exceptional that we do that. But unfortunately, it is. But it's really high class, I think, to to put a report that a, that a an IRS agent or one of their valuation analysts, or called engineers, still to this day, right, um, you know, that they can actually reverse engineer the report. And I think that's really important. It is. Otherwise, and there's no in our reports. There's no ball to hide. So why wouldn't we be transparent about how we did it? Yeah. Well, you know, and you and I could go down a different rabbit hole. Maybe we will, but not in this particular podcast. Um, but but yes, it does sometimes. I see some reports that sometimes make me think that the that the appraisers are intentionally trying to make ensure that their report is just unreadable and <laughs> taking their chances in the chaos. Um, so people fall asleep. No? 
Yeah. So I've seen that. Um, but you know, we actually touched on the next question already. So I want to just go ahead and slide into it, which is, you know, when the IRS looks at a, at a return and the return basically is going to be based on a report, like somebody would, you would do, um, what are the most common flags in your experience that the IRS looks for? Well, they want, if the report's not logical, if it's, if you contradict yourself, make contradictory statements, for example, the company only pays distributions to cover tax liabilities. And then you see something contrary to that. It's if the report looks like it was, you know, if sections of the report kind of look like they were copied and pasted from different sources, if it doesn't flow, if it's not logical, if they, if there are holes in the analysis, there, there's no segue from the analysis to the conclusion, or there's no analysis at all. The conclusions need to be based on something to show that the appraiser did his due dil- did his or her due diligence and followed through and came up with a reasonable conclusion. So, you know, the, to me, the IRS seems like a different animal. Of course, we have lots of regulatory bodies, the Security right. Exchange Commission, Environmental Protection Agency, OSHA, Department of Justice, you name it, we've got it. But the IRS seems like a different animal to me, um, in, in particular in that I think, I think more than any other agency, there is a sort of a presumption of guilt. You have to kind of prove to the IRS why you've paid the appropriate amount, not to the IRS that they're what they're suggesting you pay is inappropriate. Is is that a fair observation or do you disagree with that? Well, yes and no. The IRS has to prove income and you have to prove your expenses. So if they think your income was right, if they think your income was more than you reported, they're obligated to prove that. And any expenses, yeah, you're obligated to show documentation of those. But but in your world, where uh, an appraisal for the estate or for the uh, the gift door has been has been filed, to me it seems again like the burden of proof is actually on the estate of the gift door, not the IRS. Right, and that's why documentation explanation is so key and at the end of the day they still have certain mandates for like for one thing is tax affecting earnings and evaluation which means accruing in a pass-through entity accruing taxes that will be paid at the shareholder level because it's the earnings that are capitalized or discounted it should be what um, what you keep, not what you make. And they disallow tax effecting. There are several cases in, that came up in, in Michael Jackson, as you mentioned. And the IRS has a national mandate 
to disallow tax effecting, regardless of all these court cases now that that most of them say the tax court is not against tax affecting there, but you've got to do a good job of it. You've got to do a reasonable analysis because they're not there to recreate it. They're, they're going to throw it out. If you did, if your analysis was not reasonable or you made assumptions that weren't true. And like, for example, an assumption that the buyer would be a C corporation hanging your hat on things like that. We'll get it. We'll get it disallowed. But it, but the IRS is starting a position. That's a huge issue for them is that no tax affecting is allowed. And so they have, they probably have other mandates too, but. Oh, and one of the IRS appraisers told me that to the IRS, all discount valuations, family partnerships, LLCs, et cetera, all of them are abusive tax avoidance transactions. That's their starting gate position. So they they prefer to start at zero in discounts, generally speaking, and let you prove every percent. So that's a very adversarial position to take. And, and just for our audience, when we say tax affecting, we mean that that when you're in particular appraising a, a business that um, uh, you're you're determining the value of the company on an after-tax basis in terms of profits rather than pre-tax basis. And there are that's technical right. reasons why that's important. And when you get into things like pass-through entities, uh, it can become very complex. Um, sure. but, it, but it's interesting that I'm sort of vaguely aware of this. Again, you, you, know, you do a lot more of this, this, this than I do, but I am vaguely aware of the fact the IRS, at least they've been trying to take this position of, of starting with zero discounts, they've been trying to take the position of, 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 no, of assuming that no tax is paid by the company, that everything's a pass-through entity. Um, uh, how, how, how much have you actually seen that in practice? Because I have to say, knock on wood, I haven't seen it a lot in my practice. But again, you do more of this and you do it deeper than I do. So I'm curious how much the reputation is, is matching the practice on the road in your experience. I just had a meeting this week where the agent actually said that. He said that it was a national mandate. The, the, they were not to allow tax affecting. And what the, the, and after he said that, I thought back to some other conversations in the past with IRS agents, it seems like sometimes they're reluctant to say that if they've been told they just can't do it. And sometimes that comes out as, no, I'm going to disallow that. And they won't really explain. So I, that this is a theory that maybe that's why. But they're uncomfortable saying they've been told not to. Yeah. And it, I mean, it'd be interesting if those actually get to tax court, I think the IRS is in trouble because when you, when you take that position, you're actually violating professional standards. Um, you're basically right. predetermining to a, to a, a large extent, in some cases, you're actually predetermining the appraisal outcome. Um, That's a good point. And and um, and that may be why maybe maybe there's a national mandate, but they're probably going to play soft with that because you know tax judges, generally speaking, know what they're doing. I've actually been very impressed with uh, 
with with their reasoning and and how they articulate how they got to where they got and they seem to understand complex financial discussions uh with actually right. a fair amount of fluency um, tax judges are going to pick up on that pretty quickly oh sure they don't they don't um buy the smoke and mirrors that's for sure no, they've they, seen I mean, enough of them and and they understand I mean, they, they get the professional standards. Um, you know, they, they're, uh, of course, in every place, there are good judges and bad judges in every profession. There are good appraisers and bad appraisers. But there are enough good judges that, you know, they, they take the time to understand professional standards. And, and uh, it's interesting to see how that, that goes. But anyway, uh, I could talk right, about that stuff do. all day. Right, and they do. The tax court has disallowed tax, tax affecting, but they make a point of saying, that it's not because they think tax affecting is wrong. It's because it wasn't done correctly. And right. I get, and they think it's not their job to recompute it for you. Yes, that's right. And, and I, and I've seen the same thing that there've been a, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll do what you're supposed to do, which is, uh, which is rule and, or make a value judgment based on the prevailing facts and circumstances, not right. a, not a blanket ideological statement, which is what you're describing. Um, right. A question I want to make sure we get to here is: uh, there's been a fair amount of, of press to the, and you've indicated it yourself that the IRS is understaffed, or at least they say they are. I think they're in the midst of a big hiring push right now. Good luck. Um, but but you know, does that when the IRS is understaffed? How does that impact their reaction to tax controversies? Does that mean that that you, a taxpayer might be able to get away with more or there's simply going to be a longer queue towards resolution? Or are there other ways in which understaffing by the IRS kind of impacts the, the tax controversy conversation? Well, I think they, they certainly do have to pick and choose you know, they, the IRS certainly has to pick their battles because of it. A th another theory I have is that taxpayers hear that news that the IRS is understaffed and they, and that sometimes they get emboldened. Certain taxpayers will get emboldened to do, to push the envelope. Yep. And they might end up being the ones who stick out and get audited. I don't have data to quantify that. It's just a theory, but. Yeah, and, and I suspect that's the case, right? And a key distinction here that you've pointed out, and I just want to come back to because I think it is critical, is that with income tax returns, there's at least a semi-random element as to whether right. or not your return will be flagged for some sort of closer examination. But in terms of gift or estate, if you're if if you're a taxable estate, i.e., roughly eleven to twelve million bucks. I think is the the number range uh, for a a married couple. If you're if you're much more than that, it's really a case by case basis. Where if somebody actually is taking the time to carefully read your documentation, and then if your documentation is dubious, then you're probably going to get that call you don't want. And if your documentation is solid, then they're going to move on to that low hanging fruit, as you said. Exactly. Um. Let me ask. Let me ask this. In, in your experience, when the other the other side of the, that coin is one picking sort of the lucky few of the 
returns that will ultimately be audited um, or more closely examined. But then the other part is once you're in that phase, uh, what is the motivation to negotiate, right? We've talked about the, the motivation on the part of the taxpayer, cost, time, distraction, loss, sleep, et cetera. In, in your experience, has, has a short-staffed IRS made the IRS more motivated to dispense with matters? I would think they would be. Since they are overwhelmed, the agent will be getting more cases from their manager. The manager, again, I'm theorizing, the manager says, uh, have you finished the Smith case yet? Um, no, I have this tax risk still fighting with me. No, and I would think that the manager would be under pressure from even above them to say, settle it, give them more, see if you can work it out. So I think it, the IRS is so overwhelmed that I would think that, and they do have some pressure from the top, at least to settle at the lowest level possible. Because at some point, if they litigate too much, and ask for too much more money from Congress, the taxpayers are start, going to start to get irritated. I think that's how it would play out. Okay. Now, when we think about the IRS, or most of us anyway, you're different because you're so close to it, but when most of us think of the IRS, we think of it as uh, a pretty powerful agency. Um, and, and that means that I, there can be concerns as to whether or not there could be an abuse of that power. And, and what I'm getting at is, is there recourse? Does, it, does a taxpayer have any recourse if they feel like that for whatever reason, the person they're talking to at the IRS is, is biased or is being unreasonable, is, being, is not negotiating effects, not bargaining in good faith? Um, do taxpayers have recourse? Or are they kind of just stuck? They get who they get. Well, in some, well, there are um, the taxpayer advocate is another arm of the treasury, and I think that's more on the individual side. Honestly, I've never seen them get involved in what I do or with a business. And there's three arms of the treasury. There's the IRS, the taxpayer advocate's office, and there's TIGTA the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration. And what TICTA does is they protect the others from each other. So nothing, nothing strikes hard fear in the heart of an IRS agent like TICTA. Hmm. They fear, the IRS agents fear them kind of like other people fear IRS agents. Um, because if, if there is some kind of abuse if an IRS agent has, does unauthor, you know, un, engages in un, unauthorized access to taxpayer information, one they weren't assigned, or if, or unauthorized disclosure, those are examples where they can get into a TICTA investigation pretty quickly if they're not careful. And on the other hand, if a taxpayer harasses an IRS agent, like shows on their weapons collection or something like that, they um, take to show up very quickly 
to defend the IRS agent. So I'm there's a, kind Bruce of a watchdog. Okay. I'm talking with Bruce Wood, and the topic is, should I fight the IRS? Um, we're running out of time, but there are a couple more questions I, I do want to make sure I get in. And one of them is, um, can you countersue the IRS? You know, in, 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 in conventional civil litigation, you can countersue for damages, or at least you can seek compensation for the cost of litigating a uh, litigating a lawsuit that maybe might have been improper, frivolous, or whatever. Does any kind of mechanism like that exist with respect to a controversy with the IRS? Yes, I've heard the tax attorneys I work with that they call those administrative expenses. They can add those on as additional damages and they can be professional fees and any other direct costs of, of the litigation or the dealing with the IRS. Okay. So Bruce, as we, we sort of wrap up here, there may be questions that um, uh, some of our listeners would wish that I would have asked, or maybe we could, might've spent more time on. If somebody wants to contact you about a potential IRS controversy, just wants some advice, um, can they do so? And if so, what's the best way to contact you? Absolutely, they can. My cell phone is 770-310-5347. And my email address is bwood at bradyware.com. And that's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Bruce Wood so much for sharing his expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. If you would like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. Uh, also, check out my LinkedIn group called Unblakeable's Group That Doesn't Suck. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Brady Ware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.